0: Welcome to Industry Focus, a podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market every day. It's Wednesday, February twenty-first. I'm your host, Christine Harges, and I'm joined, as usual, by healthcare contributor Todd Campbell via Skype. Todd, what's going on? Happy Wednesday, Christine. Happy Wednesday to you too. You ready for our show today?
1: Jeez, I tell you, Christine, I'm, I'm reeling. I'm reeling from all the surprising news. I mean, oftentimes we talk about things that are um, kind of expected or, or you know,
0: forecast.
1: But not this time. This past week has been a couple uh, very surprising things to me.
0: Yeah, we had the news fairy come and deliver a couple of surprises. So um, eventually on the show, we'll be talking about one of Warren Buffett's recent buys that shocked us. But first, news in the retail pharmacy space. What's going on there?
1: I, I think that there's probably a lot of right-age shareholders who are shaking their head right now, wondering what the heck just happened, because... Rite Aid at one point a few years ago was going to get purchased lock, stock and barrel for $9 a share. And now they're doing some, some crazy combination with uh, the, the big grocer Albertsons.
0: Yeah, this was kind of crazy. I, I mean, I'm personally glad that I never was a right Aid shareholder, because this is a stock that has been on a wild ride. It's like nothing that they plan on doing actually happens as they planned it to. Um, I so- know,
1: I know. And any, any of the investors who went out in 2015 thinking, oh, I'll buy this for the arbitrage opportunity ahead of the Walgreens deal, which, which you know, if you thought that that was going to close... Is just now looking at this, going, what the heck is this stock even worth right now? I mean, you had Rite Aid at one point going to be sold for nine dollars a share, and then the FTC said, no, we do, we think that concentrates too much uh, competitive power, so you're going to have to redo the deal. Eventually, they scuttle the deal, right, Christine, and then they come back with a new refresh deal that's way smaller.
0: This deal got revised so many times, but it ultimately led to Walgreens buying about 2,000 Rite-Aid stores, which gave Rite-Aid some much-needed cash. It was a little over $4 billion worth of cash. And now, the most recent deal, yesterday the company announced that it would be merging with Albertsons. As you mentioned, Todd, is the second largest uh, grocer in the United States. They are a privately-held company. And there are some interesting options that are being presented to Rite Aid shareholders as far as what they'll get in this merger. They can either take uh, entirely shares of the new company, or they can take share shares and a little bit of cash in exchange for their Rite Aid holdings. Or, of course, you can just sell your Rite Aid shares ahead of the closing of the deal, which should happen later this year.
1: All right. And what makes this really confusing is that Albertsons isn't publicly traded yet. Yeah. So but you're it, looking at the trying to figure out what the deal value is, but you don't know what that value of that one share of instance, you can get for each 10 shares of Rite Aid. Yeah, so, so you know that you're going to end up walking away with about 30% of the combined company, but you really don't know how to value that 30%. And I think that's one of the reasons that Rite Aid shares initially pre-market popped, and then they settled only up slightly, and I think they're down today. Uh, Because these people are looking at it and going, I don't know if this deal is worth $2 a share, $3 a share, or $1 a share.
0: Yeah, it's pretty crazy. And Albertsons has a pretty interesting history as well, Um, almost as interesting as Rite Aid's history. They, I believe at one point, were public. And then they ended up being broken apart and they ended up being private. They tried to go public in 2015, but they backed out because the market was, I think this is actually a quote, too jittery. And then in 2017, they made a bid for Whole Foods, which would have made them go public again. I think our listeners all know how that ended with Amazon actually winning that bid for Whole Foods. But now with this merger, they would again, the combined company would uh, become a publicly traded entity.
1: Right. You've got all the grocery market is actually, it's a very tough business to be in. It's a very low margin business. And a lot of, because it's low margin business, um, a lot of the operators out there have decided that scale is key. And so when when Albertsons went private, uh, the people who took it private, the hedge fund, private equity funds, et cetera, they said, okay, well, let's build up a lot of scale. So they went out and they bought Um, Safeway, for example, they went out and and acquired a bunch of different stores over the course of the last few years to turn themselves into a a really large player on the East Coast and the West Coast, which is kind of similar to where Rite Aid's geography matches up. So, I mean, you could argue there's some synergies there. Um, And you may know, even if you don't have an Albertsons around your neighborhood, there are Star Markets and Shaw's and Vons and Safeway's. So you may be familiar with those brands instead, and uh, I, I don't know. This is a really interesting, interesting way for these private equity firms to, I, I guess, start to, to realize the value and by taking this public again. But again, it, it creates so many different question marks for the right Aid shareholders. I mean, you look at it for the right Aid shareholder and say, okay, well, you know, just in January, at the J.P. Morgan conference the management was unveiling this this outline, this blueprint for a plan that involved taking the four billion or so in cash they were going to get from Walgreens, pay down debt, cut their interest expense from 400 million to 200 million uh, per year, and you know reinvest in, in upgrading their stores and and do all sorts of, of things that could get them you know make them leaner and meaner and potentially put them on a path to grow again. And then fast forward now to February, uh, 21st, and we just found out that you know they've decided, um, yeah, all those plans that we did outlined, um, it, it doesn't really make sense after all. We're instead we're going to combine with Albertsons in in this funky deal, and honestly, I'm not sure whether or not. I, I guess you could say Christine that that is their admission that you know trying to compete with CVS and Walgreens as a standalone small company would just be too big of a boulder to push up the hill.
0: Yeah, I think a lot of Rite Aid bears were concerned that after selling so many stores to Walgreens, they wouldn't have the scale to be competitive. And so this deal does alleviate that pressure. Um, or sorry, Rite Aid will wind up with roughly the same number of stores as they had prior to the sale to Walgreens. And that's because m- most of Albertson's pharmacies will be rebranded as Rite Aid. But they're still dwarfed by Walgreens and CVS, which have about 10,000 stores each. So this is a, a story of a company that's facing a lot of competitive pressure. And I also want to talk about the other side of the coin, which is that Albertsons is also facing some of these competitive pressures from the likes of Walmart and from Amazon. And I I think Amazon is the dark horse in this story or the elephant in the room, if you will. We actually had an email come through the Industry Focus at Fool.com account yesterday from a guy named Gabe from Connecticut. Hi, Gabe. Thanks for writing in. Uh, And he wanted some thoughts on the acquisition. And he specifically called out Amazon. He noted that Albertsons' move could be in an effort to counteract Amazon and also enter the pharmacy space because we know that Amazon is interested in the healthcare space in several different ways. And Gabe was wondering, is Albertsons a strong competitor to Whole Foods or Amazon?
1: Yeah, I mean, there's a reason that Albertsons wanted to get Whole Foods, and part of that reason was to block Amazon's entrance and being able to have a retail footprint. You know, if you look at what Whole Foods had been had been doing some pilot programs to create smaller format stores, I'm not going to say as small as, say, a Rite Aid store, but small format stores. And then you look at what Amazon's also been up to over in Seattle with its Amazon Go, which is creating a small convenience store where you don't even have cashiers, you just walk in, pick up items and walk out the store and it charges you automatically. I suppose you could make an argument that Albertsons is saying, well, maybe what we can do is we can leverage um, the pharmacy retail footprint of Rite Aid, put a lot of our private label foods and such in there. And we basically now have all of these mini, new mini groceries, grocery stores throughout our, uh, our, our area geography as well. Um, same thing, you know, you take a bunch of these Rite Aid stores. Uh, right uh, Albertsons pharmacies inside their stores, they've got about a thousand of them. And you know, you rebrand those as Rite-Aids, and then maybe you set your loyalty program up so that people who are you know, already Rite-Aid shoppers, but aren't maybe shopping at say like a Shaw's, like I have to Shaw's near me and I don't currently shop there, but I am a member of the loyalty program on Rite-Aid. So maybe now if they tie that in together, I might be more willing now to, to go to Shaw's. And you know, according to Albertsons, you know, number crunchers, The people who go in and buy, you know, pharmacy items from them tend to buy about two times as many groceries as someone who doesn't. So they may be looking at it as saying, you know, this is a great way for us to consolidate some additional market share, to to expand within our, our particular geographies, and maybe to drive some additional sales within each of our stores that we can leverage against our fixed costs.
0: I also found that last bit to be a really interesting point when you're looking through the slide deck that the two companies presented in their announcement of this merger. I want to share some more numbers behind that. The average weekly spending of a prescription customer for Albertsons is three and a half times that of people that are non-Rx customers. And their average visits per week, 2.3 times per week, as opposed to 0.8 times for the non-prescription customers. So that's... That's huge. That is clearly a huge value proposition. And I, I can see an argument for pushing into the pharmacy business in many more of their stores in getting Rite Aid's expertise there. And hopefully, uh, you mentioned also their own labels, their private labels. Um, I can see them uh, combining scale, too, because Rite Aid also has its own labels um, it, to further drive these front-of-store sales or non-Rx sales.
1: Right. Right. And, you know, one of the things that they they said is that we think that if we get rid of a lot of the overlap in distribution, warehousing, procurement, all of that supply chain stuff, we can save about three hundred and seventy five million EBITDA over the course of a few years uh, per year in in savings from from the quote unquote famous synergies that everybody talks about during mergers and acquisitions. One of the things that jumped out at me, Christine, throughout that entire presentation, there were no mention of the word earnings. It was all EBITDA.
0: Oh interesting.
1: Yeah. And I think that what that's that shows you when you go back and you look at the S one filing from two thousand fifteen for Albertsons, they're losing money. You know, they're profitable on an EBITDA basis, but on a you know, they had a net loss in, in as of twenty fourteen. And you know, if you look at what their forecast for sales was, I think it was showing only one point seven percent top line growth for Albertsons between two thousand sixteen and two thousand estimated two thousand eighteen. You know, that's that's certainly not barn burner growth. So as a right aid investor you're now looking at this and going okay do I want to hold on and see what Albertsons shares come to market at I guess you kind of kind of have to you're only going to get 18 cents uh, a share p- in cash plus one share or you go and you get the what what do I think it's 1.08 um, shares of Albertsons if you go the other route you know you I, I don't know I, this is this is a this is a tough one
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I I think it also kind of speaks to the difficulty of evaluating private companies. Even though we are getting more information about Albertsons now, It's just, it's tough. It's hard to contextualize it. It's hard to figure out and peel back the layers of how this business functions, because they previously haven't had to share this information. I know Dylan Lewis, the host of The Tech Show on Fridays, he talks about this all the time, about not investing in companies right after they IPO. And I think he makes a lot of great points. And I want to make another point in general about private companies, which is that it's so easy to forget that they're a factor here. I mean, when you look at, and I'm, I'm totally stepping on Vince, our consumer goods host's uh, toes here, in talking about the grocery space, but I think we've already been doing that, so I'm just going to continue to step on those toes. But that's a really low-margin business, and when you're looking at the the various grocery store chains, I don't know how much the people who are, are deeply analyzing that sector even remember to talk about the number two biggest player here, which is Albertsons, because it's private. I mean, I know I make this mistake all the time when I'm looking at healthcare IT companies, and I forget that Epic Systems even exists. And how can you forget about them? They're the top dog here, but it's, it's so much easier to just think about Cerner, their biggest competitor, uh, because Cerner is public. And So, when you get news like this, where a private company all of a sudden really starts to matter to the public markets, it's always just an eye-opener for me that it's important to consider these companies and try to get as much information as you can about them in order to really understand the broader landscape. Yeah,
1: and I, I suppose that one takeaway from an investment standpoint, too, is because we don't know a lot about Albertsons, it could be that investors generally are undervaluing its potential. Um, or what the potential worth might be to Rite Aid, Um, you know, and it could be that it is worth more than two. I mean, it wasn't that long ago, again, that, you know, Rite Aid, people were talking about Rite Aid getting sold for a much higher amount. I think during the, even after Walgreens did its restructuring, it was still talking about $6.50 a share all in. So it's hard hard to imagine that all of a sudden Rite Aid is worth only, say, $2 a share right around where it's trading now. The other thing that we have to recognize, though, is that that market is moving so and changing so so quickly, right? We have CBS coming out and announcing they're attempting to buy Aetna. And if they do that, then, well, what does that do with all of those now Aetna customers now being driven, captive captive con- consumers driven to the CBS stores? How does Rite Aid combat against that? How does Rite Aid combat against Walgreens if Walgreens goes ahead and tries to acquire the rest of Berg and, and solidify its its ability to drive down price um, in negotiating power that way. Um, so this is a very it's a, it's 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 a very confusing deal and and it's definitely a surprising deal as far as I'm concerned.
0: Yep, I completely agree. Changing gears now, our next segment features the Oracle of Omaha, Mr. Warren Buffett himself. Let's preface our discussion that we're about to have with a little bit of explanation of how we get our information about Warren Buffett, what Warren Buffett is up to stock wise. So, when we talk about what Buffett bought in the most recent quarter, what we're specifically saying is that we know from a filing called A 13F that Berkshire Hathaway, the company that he runs, bought shares of the given stock.
1: Right. They have to file those every quarter. Big investors have to file it every quarter. And in this case, we're not talking about uh, Warren Buffett's personal portfolio. We're talking about Berkshire Hathaway, the the company that that he and Charlie Munger run, and what that portfolio happens to own in it. I think that portfolio manages about $180 billion (laughs) in equities. Um, So it's definitely one worth paying attention to. And um, you know, I, I so I so yeah, so we, we have that information and we get that on a quarterly basis and it just came out and it's in arrears. So we're talking about what was bought as of the end of December 31st, so the, the fourth quarter in this case of 2017.
0: Right. So with all of those caveats in mind, we wanted to highlight something that we thought was a really shocking buy, quite frankly. I I was surprised to see this. Which is a very large position in Teva Pharmaceutical. I actually I should walk that back a little bit because for them it's not a very large position, but it was a three hundred and fifty eight million dollar stake. Which to you and I, Todd, that's pretty large.
1: Yeah, and after appreciation since the news came out, it's it's closer to a four hundred million dollar uh, stake. You bought eighteen point nine million shares in Teva Pharmaceutical. Uh, And that launched him into the the company's ninth largest uh, shareholder. So, instantaneously in one quarter, uh, Warren Buffett surprises everybody becomes the ninth largest shareholder of Teva Pharmaceutical.
0: Right. And so, the reason that this is kind of surprising is because Teva is... In a bit of a rough patch, the stock lost about half of its value in 2017. Um, For context about what the business does, they're the largest maker of generic drugs. Um, They also have a few uh, uh, brand-name drugs, specifically Copaxone is its top-selling drug. It's for multiple sclerosis. It has been facing generic competition, and it's still generating multiple billions of dollars per year, but its revenue is dropping pretty sharply. On top of that, also saddled with a ton of debt due to an acquisition of Allergan's generic unit, uh, which was Activist. This was back in the year 2016. That was a $33 billion cash acquisition, plus also $100 uh, million in shares, which made it the world's largest drug maker right at a time when generic drugs are facing very steep competition that puts a lot of pressure on, on the pricing of these drugs.
1: Right. We hinted at the consolidation in the prior segment when we were talking about uh, what's going on with some of these pharmacy retailers. Well, the same thing's happening with insurers consolidating together, drug distributors trying to consolidate their buying power, pharmacy benefit managers consolidating their buying power. And as a result of all of that buying power getting consolidated, companies like Teva, which has about 13 percent market share in generic drugs, is having a harder time demanding um, better pricing. And as a right result, their, their profit margins are sliding. So you have them making this huge purchase of uh, of activists, selling themselves with a lot of debt, even at a time where the profit margins on the generic drugs that they're producing are shrinking. And then you throw that on top of that with the fact that you know, last fall, the first uh, 40 milligram version, so the long-lasting version of Copaxin, got approved, and that was launched by Mylan. In I think October of 2017. So in the fourth quarter, you had the situation where four billion or 20% of Teva's, Teva Pharmaceuticals revenue now has been called into question. How much of this uh, is going to end up moving or migrating to my land and others, um, or how and how much are you going? Is Teva going to have to issue in, in rebates to continue to maintain its market share thereby putting even more pressure on its bottom line?
0: Yep. So it is no secret that Teva is struggling, and it, it's reflected in their stock price. The company is down almost 60% from their highs reached in mid-2015. But Warren Buffett loves a bargain. This is clearly a value play here. I think. Yeah, he recognizes- I, I
1: suppose when you start looking at it that way, Christine, it's not as surprising once you start thinking about it. Because, right, he loves companies that have a moat. He loves buying companies that are cheap to their book value. And he really doesn't care that much about dividends. So the fact that Teva got rid of its dividends last year, that doesn't really matter to him. What probably did matter to him is that in November, Teva actually started trading below its book value of thirteen fifty per share.
0: yep, absolutely. You mentioned that he loves companies that have a competitive moat. Do you think that Teva does? Uh,
1: to only t- to some degree it does. I mean, it's very it's obviously it's the biggest maker of generic drugs. And I think that you look at that and you say, well, that gives you, um, by the nature of the beast. I mean, you look at what does he like to buy? What does Buffett like to buy? He likes to buy big companies like ExxonMobil. He's taken uh, stakes in when that's gotten beaten up. He's taken stakes in big banks when they've got beaten up. You know, he likes to find these big players within there within those markets and then be able to go a, and grab them, you know, at, on sale at discount prices. So I think you can argue that, you know, while Teva faces off a lot of, of a lot of competitors and the other, you know, in the generic uh, drug marketplace. I think it does have a little bit of a moat. And I think the other thing that you have to consider is that, you know, when you think about what the demographics look like heading forward. So there's this huge tailwind because of this aging global population demanding more and more drugs. It's sort of going to provide this natural support for Teva Pharmaceutical. And then when you consider that, Chris, all of that, right, Christine, alongside the fact that, you know, it's not like Teva's losing money. You know they're still going to turn a profit of over two dollars a share this year, so it's not like this company is losing money. So buying a company that that you know still has earnings at cheaper than book value, um, maybe maybe that's not as as crazy or surprising as it seems.
0: Yeah, it it was one of those headlines that really surprised me, and then when I started digging into it and thinking about companies that Warren Buffett has been interested in in the past and his general philosophy. And I can kind of see it. It's actually not that surprising when you look at the details. I think you made some great points, Todd, about the long-term demographic trends. If you project all the way out to 2020, it's estimated that generics will be about 91 to 92% of all prescriptions. That's up from 88% in 2015. So even if the short-term and even the medium-term don't quite look great for the generics business, Warren Buffett is a long-term buy-and-hold investor. It's very much in line with what we believe here at the Motley fool. Um, I'll also point out another thing that I bet Buffett probably likes about this stock, which is that healthcare in general is in, inelastic, meaning that in great economies or terrible economies, as as uh, the cycles come and go, people still have consistent demand for this type of product because you can't choose when you get sick. You're always going to need drugs that you're going to need. Um, and on the other hand of that, Berkshire doesn't actually own much healthcare. Um, they've been trimming their stakes in Sanofi and Johnson and Johnson. Although they do maintain a position in Davita, which is a dialysis company. So. I, I, I'm uh, on the fence about whether that's a really good reason to say, "Oh, Buffett would like this because it's healthcare and it's inelastic." Because traditionally, he hasn't been a huge healthcare guy. But yeah, I do think been, that he's kind of
1: shied away from that market, hasn't he? And yeah. I think it's probably because of the uncertainty of, you know, drug approvals, et cetera. You never know who's going to outmaneuver you. You know? Yeah. Um, and, well, I think and, he and, may also like the fact, Christine, that you know, after cutting its dividend. You know the company's got a big restructuring plan that it's in the in the, you know starting to get really ramped up over the course of the next year and a half that that should be able to cut three billion in expenses. Yeah, per absolutely. Year, uh, the, the, once it's fully done in you know that that they expect that to happen in 2019. So there's operating leverage there. So like you said, he's long term focused. So you may be looking at it and saying, listen, you're going to end up with operating leverage because of all the cost cuts. And yeah, Kovacs is going to lose you know some amount of its sales, maybe it drops from three billion to two billion to one and a half billion. Who knows, right? But if it stabilizes and you've got all that operating leverage then over time, this could be actually become a much more profitable company than it was in the peak, say of 2014 or 15.
0: Yep. Um, ultimately, though, when I look at this and I try to justify why Teva might be a good stock based on the things that Warren Buffett might see in it, the conclusion that I ultimately come to is that why wouldn't I just buy Berkshire? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> what do you think, Todd?
1: Right. Why wouldn't I buy Berkshire, or why wouldn't I just go out and buy, you know, the the spider that covers the healthcare industry? Right. Why yeah. Why would I do that? I mean, I tend to focus uh, more on companies that that are are have more certainty to their growth rather than uncertainty to where the bottom will be found. Um, But he's got such deep pockets that, I mean, this represents like a such a tiny fraction of his portfolio. So, I mean, I suppose if you're looking at it as an individual investor, should should I also buy this too? Well, yeah, if you want to put 0.3% of your (laughs) money in it, I mean, why not take that risk, I suppose?
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I I guess it's probably time to make the general disclaimer about 13Fs, which is that, they don't really come with a lot of information about what is on the inside of these billionaires' heads. So we don't know exactly why. We're speculating here based on what we know about Warren Buffett. And so it's never wise to just follow billionaires into these stocks, particularly because it's so uh, rear-view looking, because it was over the past quarter. So no one is to say whether or not right this second Warren Buffett still thinks that Teva is a buy
1: right and it could very well be that it, you know he he liked it at 13.50 when it was trading at book value but now at $20 he thinks it's fairly valued and has no interest in adding more shares we won't know until the next 13f report
0: yeah for sure All right, Todd, so we are about to wrap up for the day, but thank you so much for being here as always. And people on the program may have interest in the stocks that they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. This show is produced by Austin Morgan. For Todd Campbell, I'm Christine Harjes. Thanks for listening and Fool on!